it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, from Los Angeles. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. I'm Guy Benson, your host, Fox News contributor also political editor at townhall.com and the host of this fine program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We always appreciate you being here as we grow together. Our podcast, also growing, is available every day on demand after the show for free at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us in what we do here. Lots of content available, not just at GuyBensonShow.com, but also on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. You can follow us there. Follow me on the same platforms, at Guy P. Benson. From L.A., I'll be doing Fox News at night later this evening in the 9 p.m. hour local time, midnight in the east. So since I'm out here and it's hosted out here by Trace Gallagher, I might as well swing by the set, the L.A. Bureau. I'll be doing that later on this evening. So hope you'll tune in for that or set your DVR again. That's Fox News at night on Fox News Channel, midnight Eastern. Our lineup on the radio, Miranda Devine is going to join us coming up later on this hour. Hunter Biden's lawyers have basically finally admitted, okay, the laptop's real. It is his. And now they're trying to go on offense against his critics trying to play the victim card, which is often the case in our politics. I don't think it's going to work, but we will ask Miranda Devine about that. She literally wrote the book on this whole scandal. Dagan McDowell will be here talking about her brand-new show, which recently debuted on Fox Business Network, also economic news, political news. Looking forward to that chat with Dagan in our middle hour. And in our last hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, He will be back here on the program. I've got a bunch of stuff to ask him about, so I hope you will stay tuned today. So on the victimhood front, my initial plan, just to be transparent and sort of claw back the curtain a little bit, the plan on the show today was to open on immigration. There is a fair amount of news on the border crisis. There's some sound I want to play for you. However, there's some breaking news that happened earlier today that I've just – made the executive decision to lead with instead, sort of on the fly here. The U.S. House of Representatives voted a couple hours ago to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, a Democrat from Minnesota, member of the squad, from the Foreign Affairs Committee in the lower chamber. The vote was 218 to 211. One member voted present, basically exactly a party line vote. Not surprising. I think we will see similar moves with a couple other members. We've talked about Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee, Eric Swalwell and the Intelligence Committee. But this was Ilhan Omar, Foreign Affairs Committee, something that Republicans had telegraphed they were going to do for a while, especially after Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats made a decision to break with precedent. We talked about this a few weeks ago on the show. They made a decision in the last Congress 
that when Marjorie Taylor Greene was in some trouble and some statements she had made were being resurfaced. And look, she has said and continues to say a lot of crazy stuff and problematic stuff. I'm not a fan of Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? She is not someone we have on this show. I think she does more damage than good to the Republican Party. I mean, I could go on and on. But generally, the way things have worked is if there's a member who needs to be stripped of their committees, their party makes that decision. Right? Steve King had said some bigoted stuff about immigrants years ago. The Republicans stripped him of some committee assignments, if memory serves. This is how it goes. But what Pelosi decided, and all of the House Democrats, you know, they always would salute whatever Pelosi decided. They always work together and act in unison. They chose to bigfoot the tradition, bigfoot the precedent, and come in and start making decisions on the committee assignments front for the Republicans, saying, okay, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she said some stuff, including the, you know, the, the rap sheet was stuff she had said in the past. I mean, it's, it's an embarrassing and shameful rap sheet, but that would have or should have been on the Republicans to make those decisions. I think they also ended up throwing Gosar after, uh, Paul Gosar off of some committees as well for various reasons. And there was a big push to get Lauren Boebert thrown off of committees, including by members of the squad because they didn't like something that Boebert had said. So that's the backdrop to all of this. And a lot of people, including me, at the time, even folks who were not eager to defend Marjorie Taylor Greene at all, and this isn't really a defense of MTG, it's just the the principle of how the, the legislative body works, we said if the Democrats are going to use this new standard to create a new precedent where the majority party picks people that they really object to, and even if there's you know good reasons, and they're going to start making committee decisions as opposed to the party to which those members belong, then this shoe will be on the other foot at some point, probably soon. We were making this point what, last year, the year before that, the previous Congress. And we said once the shoe is on that other foot, there will be payback, right? This is going to start a tit-for-tat political battle. And the Democrats didn't care. They went for it anyway. Their base was clamoring for it. They wanted to scratch the itch. They wanted to say, look, we've purged this terrible person off of the committees. Good for us. We've defended the institution, right? This is how they justified. It's like, all right, well, you know, get ready for some of that in a way that you don't like. And that's exactly what has happened today with Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar has on multiple occasions, it's not just her insane, over-the-top hostility toward Israel and her BDS stuff, which is not just anti-Israel, but anti-Semitism, based on Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi's own definition. The obsession with one tiny country that happens to be the only Jewish country in the world, along with Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar has been obsessed with Israel. And in the process of her obsession with Israel, which they always frame as anti-Zionism and anti-imperialism, not anti-Semitism, that's what they try, she was also doing some anti-Semitic stuff. And has said it repeatedly, it's been a whole sequence of comments and statements and actions. And Omar, we played you the clip earlier in the week, was trying to feign ignorance, like, oh, I didn't realize 
that I shouldn't have said that the Jews hypnotized the world. I didn't realize that there were tropes out there about Jews and money. Mm-hmm. Sure you didn't. You just happened to accidentally stumble into it as a grown woman steeped in anti-Israeli and, frankly, anti-Semitic sentiment. We heard when this all blew up in the previous Congress as well, a couple of years ago now, when the Democrats were in the majority, where Omar had said something else that was yet again anti-Semitic, not to be confused with her downplaying of 9-11 and other horrible things that she said. Like, if we're just, like, listing offensive things and then deciding, okay, we don't like this person, they're off a committee, I mean, there's a strong case for Ilhan Omar, who, by the way, participated in this new standard. She and the squad, who are screeching the loudest today about this, they eagerly went along with the purging of Republicans from committees last Congress when they didn't like the people getting purged. Now their buddies are getting purged and they're losing their minds. Sorry. As I've said before, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You built this. Enjoy, squad. The squad ladies were actually agitating for Boebert to lose her committee assignments, too. There were dozens of Democrats pushing for that. They didn't quite go for it. They stopped it, too. But these ladies are all about the purging over offensive things, quote-unquote, that are said. Just not their offensive things. Right? Their bigotry is fine. It's other people's alleged bigotry that must have consequences. I mean, the double standards could not be any more obvious, which is why I think it's very satisfying to see them foisted upon their own petard, their own standards. Ilhan Omar, just, you know, oh, who, me? I... I didn't know. Oh, should I not have talked about the Jews throwing around $100 bills? It's all about the Benjamins as they hypnotize the world. I I just didn't I just didn't know. No one believes that. She's a liar. Jews in her district, Jewish organizations in her district said, "Oh, she had said some anti-Semitic stuff in the past. We brought her in very lovingly, very warmly to educate her. Hey, this is why this was hurtful. Here's why it was a problem." She knew. She just kept doing it because that's who she is. That's Ilhan Omar. And what they always do is when you criticize someone for their bigotry, this is what the squad in particular does. They're just out there lobbing bombs at people constantly, right? Rhetorical bombs, accusations, finger pointing, slandering people, attacking people. It's what they do all the time. You criticize any of them ever for their actions for their words they're like oh well you're putting us in danger we're the victims how dare you so we saw some of that on the house floor today i know it's award season so we had some real performances dialed up from rashida talib who was virtually in tears aoc was like slamming the podium and waving her arms around like one of those things outside a car dealership right that gets blown around by air That was AOC on the House floor today. Oh, no. Look at me. I'm so mad. Own standards, AOC. Sorry. So here she was. And, of course, it couldn't just be that Republicans were doing to Democrats what the Democrats just had done to Republicans, that Omar has said some really terrible things. No, no. The victim is Ilhan Omar, according to AOC, and it's because of not her bigotry, but the Republicans' bigotry. Obviously, here's AOC, cut 29. 
As also, as a fellow New Yorker, I think one of the things that we should talk about here is also one of the disgusting legacies after 9-11 has been the targeting and racism against Muslim Americans throughout the United States of America. And this is an extension of that legacy. Consistency, there is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. Okay. Thanks, AOC. In this body. Okay. Got it. By the way, you're talking about 9-11, the legacy of 9-11. I believe it was your friend, your dear friend and colleague, Ilhan Omar, who referred to 9-11, the terrorist attack that murdered 3,000 Americans, as some people did something. I think that was the way that she described it once, if I recall correctly. And it's all about the racism and putting people in danger, the women of color in this body or whatever she said. There's a problem with that argument, which I'll get to in just a second, but not to be outdone, Best Supporting Actress nominee, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, also of the squad. And I'll say this for Rashida Tlaib. I think she doth protest not too much because she recognizes that if this can happen to Omar, it will happen to her. Because if you put them side by side, Tlaib is a much dumber and much more aggressive bigot than Ilhan Omar. Omar has a whole series of problems, some of which I've recounted here just moments ago. Tlaib is worse. Tlaib is a full-blown anti-Semite, and I would argue terrorist sympathizer, or at least she associates with terrorist sympathizers. That's a proven fact. She believes that Israel should not have a right to exist. She lied about that at first to get elected. She put a little post-it note over Israel on her office map and just called it Palestine. Whenever there are attacks against Jews in in Israel, she is silent or equivocal, and she constantly repeats blood libels against Israel and Jews in that conflict. She's obsessed with Israel even more than Ilhan Omar. Rashida Tlaib belongs nowhere near a committee of any significance in the U.S. Congress. And I think deep down she kind of knows it, right? If they're getting Ilhan Omar for this, they would get me in a similar circumstance. So she was really carrying on. Listen to this bigot in Cut 28 crying these crocodile tears. How ironic that the so-called lovers of personal freedom are now moving to censor Congresswoman Omar in the same week. They introduced a bill to ban federal employees from engaging in censorship. Where are... The free speech warriors today, the hypocrisy is obvious to the American people. You are showing who you all are, really. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar will not be silenced. The gentlewoman's time has expired. Omar, the gentlewoman's time has expired. The gentlewoman from I mean, that's like a pretty good impression, I have to say. I do some good impressions. That might be my best one. There's no hypocrisy. No one is silencing Ilhan Omar. They are going to talk and talk and talk. They always do. She's not sitting on the committee anymore using the standard that these screechers forced upon the Republicans last Congress. And now it's like, all right, new rules. Enjoy your new rules. That's what's happening here. And by the way, for all this BS... 
that this is because they're she's a woman of color and the racist, sexist Republicans are targeting her and putting her in danger because she's a woman of color. Who are the other two members that they're talking about throwing off committees? All right, Swalwell and Schiff, two white guys. Kind of messes with the narrative. Someone gets some smelling salts for Rashida Tlaib. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. I appreciated a speech that was given earlier today on the Senate floor. We just played some sound from the House floor in the last segment. That was really something. What a show. What a show the squad put on. Over in the other chamber, someone who's a little bit less flamboyant, Mitch McConnell, (laughs) gave a speech highlighting something that we have been talking about quite a lot which is the absolute destruction of a lefty narrative in Georgia about voter suppression and Jim Crow and those really disgusting, ugly racial lies that they told to scare people, to anger people, to motivate people to vote based on lies. And now they've gone from like, oh, yes, boycott Georgia, the Major League Baseball game's got to be out of Atlanta, and now a bunch of Democrats are pushing hard for the Democratic convention to be in Georgia next year. We talked about that earlier in the week. McConnell drawing some lessons, making sure the Democrats had to hear it, stated very plainly, cut 27. Ah, but here's the icing on the cake. The same Democratic Party that cheered Major League Baseball for moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta, listen to this, now has Atlanta on the short list for the next Democratic National Convention. Well, here's what happened. We were right, and they were wrong. But it goes beyond that. These people actually lied. They invoked our darkest history and slandered half the country because they wanted more power for themselves. Some of the most powerful people in our entire country, including the President of the United States, staked their personal credibility to these claims. Biden said worse than Jim Crow, made all sorts of horrific comparisons, cheered MLB pulling the game out of Atlanta. I hope he picks Atlanta for the DNC. It would be really fitting. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. We're in Los Angeles today. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free when the show is over every day. With us now, Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, author of the book Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Miranda, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Guy. All right, so some pretty significant developments in the laptop saga just exploding into public view this week, courtesy of court documents. And what's interesting, at least as I see it, Miranda, is that Hunter Biden and his legal team apparently have decided to give up the ghost on any form of denying the authenticity of these materials. And they're now going on offense to try to punish people for noticing the stuff that he was involved in. Tell us about what we've learned in these last few days. 
Yes, hi, Guy. Look, um, I think it, what's happened is, and, and Hunter Biden's sugar brother, his um, friend and lawyer in Malibu, Kevin Morris, um, has been foreshadowing uh, some sort of get square with the people who he says are tormenting Hunter by publishing material from his laptop. Um, and so yesterday we saw them go on the offence. And I think really it, it's two, a twofold purpose. One is to take the heat off Joe Biden and distract people, especially people who aren't really au fait with this whole story and don't understand that it's not really about Hunter Biden. It's about what the laptop reveals about Joe Biden and his involvement in the family's long-running influence peddling scheme, which scored them millions of dollars from uh, places like China and, and Russia and Ukraine, where shady characters uh, um, were doing business, trying to buy influence from the Bidens with who the, the then vice president, who had carriage over uh, important um, policy in their in their countries, and of course China's always trying to get the better of America. So, what better way to do that than to get on the inside with the vice president now the president? And uh, I, I think that's the reason. And also to to basically, I think it, it annoys Hunter that he's been told by the White House to stay silent and uh, not refute any um, stories that come up about him. So the New York Post, in covering the new developments this week, describes it this way, the situation. First son Hunter Biden's lawyers admitted late Wednesday that the infamous laptop that the now 52-year-old abandoned at a Delaware computer repair shop in the throes of his crack cocaine addiction does indeed belong to him. The revelation came in a petulant letter from Hunter's lawyers seeking a criminal probe into what they called attempts to weaponize its contents. So just breaking this down a little bit, Miranda, number one, let's just start on the authenticity piece. It's not new news, right? It was authentic from the very moment this stuff was first reported back before the election in 2020. It was throttled. It was suppressed because the Biden campaign didn't want this to become an issue. They just decided it was Russian disinformation. They got some people on side to sign a letter former intelligence guys and gals say, yep, this looks like Russian disinformation. The media went along with it. Social media went along with it. It Just a bunch of people bowed down and obeyed for political reasons at the time to censor the story. But it was never inauthentic. It was always authentic. And the authenticity of the laptop had been confirmed multiple times over by right-leaning outlets and then finally even left-leaning mainstream outlets, I think, ahead of potential criminal charges or that sort of thing, they got the tip off that they would look really bad if they were still cone of silence on all this stuff. So over the last year, you've seen these mainstream outlets saying, oh, gosh, it looks like maybe there is something here and the laptop is real and maybe some of these business dealings are a little shady. But we've never gotten like the full-blown final confirmation from Team Hunter, Team Biden itself. Remember, their initial position was these are lies This is Russian disinformation, and now in this letter, this angry letter from Hunter Biden's lawyers, they're saying, you know, hell yes, it's Hunter's, and we want to punish you for talking about it. That is quite an about face. Uh, Well, yes, it is. And, of course, we never would have published that initial story in October 
2020 uh, if we hadn't been certain that what we were publishing was authentic. And you mentioned the letter by the 51 former intelligence operatives, including uh, five former CIA directors or acting directors lying, having not even um, looked at the laptop or even asked to look at the hard drive, uh, lying that it was Russian disinformation. And they, they used the words uh, earmarks of a Russian information operation, mm -hmm. but they intended it to be heard as Russian disinformation. And that's the way Joe Biden took it. And that's exactly what he was supposed to do because the letter was written specifically to get him off the hook. It's pretty obvious. And uh, Joe Biden, a couple of days after that letter was written, um, a few days after our story came out, uh, he went up on stage against Donald Trump in the final debate of the 2020 presidential campaign. And he uh, described the laptop as a Russian plant. He said it was complete garbage. He mm -hmm. cited the... 51, uh, he called them 50 former intelligence folks. It didn't say former. Uh, and he um, and he also said, you know, he said to the audience, you know, my honesty and, and my integrity and um, I would stack it up against, you know, this guy Trump's any day. Well, yeah, we do know uh, the, the, the state of his honesty and his integrity. It's non-existent. Um, this is a, a very dishonest man who lies. He's very duplicitous. He tells tall stories. He always has. And uh, now that he's in office, the lies just come so thick and fast. I think it's hard for people to, to sort of sort through them and catch up with them. It's interesting, just breaking news um, just a, a short time ago, uh, Hunter's lawyers um, clearly stung by the, the New York Post front page today saying, it's mine, and saying Hunter Biden finally admitted uh, on the record that that laptop is his, something everyone knew. Uh, so his lawyers have issued a sort of clarification letter, <laughs> and um, they're basically saying, that, oh, no, we never said that. No, no, we oh. never said you know, it doesn't confirm that, Oops. That, that this is the so-called laptop. I mean, the letter says that. So ridiculous. Well, he's not being represented by the best, it would seem, because they admitted it. Maybe they didn't realize that this was actually going to confirm what the critics have been saying. So now they're trying to backtrack. That's insulting. Also insulting, as you point out, is this song and dance that Joe Biden does. Sort of this, like, old-timey, take my word as a Biden. He likes to talk about that. I don't think it really means what he thinks it means to a lot of people because of his demonstrable lying on this very subject. And I think it's interesting, Miranda, this kind of jujitsu where they went from it's fake, Russian plant, Russian disinformation, total lie, Rudy Giuliani, you know, all of that before the election to, yes, it's ours and we're coming after you because you're violating our client's privacy. It seems like now they're sort of backing off, retreating a little bit because they've accidentally admitted something that they didn't want to, but they have, so they have to live with that. But the attempt to turn this against the critics of the Biden family, very interesting. They're calling it a failed, dirty political trick, which, again, I don't really know what the definition of that means in their minds because it's not a dirty trick to report accurate information. I don't care about his substance abuse or... The womanizing, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of really sordid stuff there. Clearly, he's troubled. As you noted, though, Miranda, this is about trading on the family name, unseemly business deals, lots of money floating around from unsavory characters and hostile countries. 
and the awareness and possible profiting of now the president from some of this stuff that he foreswore any knowledge of whatsoever. That's not true, as we've learned. This is not a political dirty trick. The dirty trick was covering it up and blaming it on the Russians. Absolutely. The cover-up is probably, as with Watergate, uh, bigger than the original corruption story. Um, Joe Biden lied. He knew that um, that was Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, of course he did. And uh, Hunter had dropped it off on in April of 2019, just a couple of weeks before his father announced his candidacy for president to be president. And uh, it caused great headaches within the Biden campaign. So, of course, Joe Biden knew it was his son's laptop. And uh, he, he also knew his son was a drug addict and was leaving his devices all over the place. Um, I guess like father, like son, because Joe, Joe Biden himself isn't very uh, good with information security. Um, and Joe Biden also lied when he told the American people during the campaign that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings. There's mm. evidence on the laptop and from uh, Hunter Biden's former business partners that uh, Joe Biden met with at least a dozen of Hunter's overseas business partners. He flew Hunter to Beijing in 2013 on Air Force Two, and he shook hands with one of his business partners who was about to make Hunter very rich. Uh, he met with Hunter's overseas business partners in um, in his home in the vice presidential residence in Washington. He met them at um, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant in Georgetown called Cafe Milano in one famous uh, dinner that Hunter Biden organized in 2015. Uh, he, he, Joe Biden met with Hunter's business partners and benefactors from Russia, Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Now remember that Hunter and his uncle, Jim Biden, Joe's younger brother, uh, they had been raking in millions of dollars from countries around the world uh, as soon as Joe Biden was vice president. And Joe Biden was tasked with uh, policy for various parts of the world like China, like Ukraine. And those were the mm -hmm. countries where the Biden family got the most money. And it's just um, absurd that they think that they can keep on stonewalling and that the fact that they have tame media on side is going to protect them. There's now a special counsel looking into Joe Biden's alleged mishandling of classified documents. And they are going to have to, Robert Hur is going to have to, at some point, compare notes and maybe even merge investigations with the US attorney in Delaware who's looking into Hunter Biden's uh, business dealings and has been since 2018. Um, they, they, uh, you know, they, they can't hide forever. They can keep kicking the can down the road, but we've got James Comer and the Oversight Committee and Jim Jordan, the Republicans in the House. They are now very determined, very knowledgeable. They're up to speed with what's going on. They have subpoena power, and they are going to be hauling uh, before hearings uh, Hunter Biden's former business partners and others with uh, information about the financial transactions because his story is not. Yeah, and I about want to get to that here in just a second and some of the oversight, Miranda, from the committees that you just mentioned. But just very quickly, it sounds to me, and I think to all of our listeners, if the intent of this lawyer letter yesterday was to try to intimidate people like you into backing off a new strategy from Team Biden. 
it just sounds from your tone and everything that you're saying, that was a big failure. Sounds like you're not going to back an inch from this. Well, I mean, no. I mean, what's he trying to say? That um, What that letter said to, for instance, John Paul MacIsaac, is that he was not legally authorised to access the laptop. Well, yes, he was. We have the work order. We would not have published if we weren't satisfied about that. Our lawyers have satisfied themselves uh, two years ago that John Paul MacIsaac had legal possession of that laptop. Yeah, look, um, everything and- they've said about this has been a lie, right? I mean, you guys had it buttoned up from day one. They've been lying about it constantly. This is the latest round of bluster to try to deflect this thing away. But it seems like we're getting closer to the truth. And on that score, last question, Miranda Devine. You talked about all of these investigations. The U.S. Attorney's federal investigation into Hunter in Delaware, the special counsel on the classified documents with Joe Biden, then the various committees, judiciary, oversight in the House. What's the interplay? What should Republicans in the House be doing on this that doesn't necessarily look overly political? Because to a lot of people, it will look like a partisan witch hunt, no matter how legitimate it is, when you've got these other investigations, like criminal investigation, for example, into Hunter Biden playing out on another track, how should the Republicans try to thread the needle to fill in some of these gaps and do a public service without perhaps taking the juice out of what might be coming from potential criminal charges? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple, and I think they're doing it, um, from what I can tell from the outside. Uh, They're um, ensuring that people understand that this is not about Hunter Biden. It's about Joe Biden, the president, and what kind of compromises uh, may be uh, made because of the money that his family has taken from China and and Russia and Ukraine and elsewhere, Uh, and uh, whether our policies towards, for instance, China have been softened as a result. We know that Joe Biden's gone soft on Russia, I'm sorry, on China. Why is that? Um, and so uh, that's important. And that's not a partisan thing. That is a, um, a, a matter of national security. But I don't see how you can avoid partisanship or being accused of being partisan. Right. Joe it, it, Biden you're is right. the Democratic president and the Democratic yeah, there's party. no getting around that there's no question about that of course you're right and some people might say Miranda well you know can you really draw a line between this money flowing into Biden family coffers and foreign policy changing is there a direct correlation did one thing lead to another were there quid pro quos I don't know the answer to those things I think you'd need serious evidence to prove those things but I would point out as you just did a moment ago Joe Biden has lied so much about all of this that it only makes people more inquisitive, more suspicious, and I think we need to learn a lot more information. Someone who is all over it, obviously, and not going to step back from the fight at all in light of these blustery threats from the Biden lawyers is Miranda Devine. You can read her at the New York Post, a Fox News contributor. Her book is Laptop from Hell. Miranda, appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. Great to talk to you. We'll step aside and come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Stephen Colbert on his show, which pretty frequently gets beaten by Greg Gutfeld in the ratings, he was making a joke about the upcoming end to the official COVID emergency in May from the Biden administration. 
Here's what he said. Listen to the crowd reaction. Cut 26. Keeping tonight breathing easy because the White House has finally announced they plan to end the COVID public health emergency in May. Take that, COVID. We beat you. Shove that up your nose and rotate it five times. <laughs> this, is, this has been a long time coming. I wish you could see the smiles on the faces of my audience. And I wish I could, too, because they're still wearing masks. The end is so the here. camera cuts to the audience, and every single person is wearing a mask. Obviously, that's someone's policy. These are not a bunch of people choosing all of them to wear masks. I've been to indoor events in New York City, Broadway shows, concerts. People, for the most part, are not wearing masks unless they're forced to. Someone at CBS or Colbert World is forcing these people to wear masks. I just saw a study out this week about how, again, questioning the efficacy of masking on COVID and other related diseases. It's just amazing to me. It's February 2023, and there are still people living like this. Sometimes we forget it because we're just living our lives. There are still people living like this, waiting for the permission slip in May from the administration based on the science. Incredible, like another universe. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Dagan McDowell will be here. Stay tuned. Powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show from L.A. today. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. Catch me tonight on Fox News at night in the midnight hour Eastern Time, 9 p.m. hour out here with Trace Gallagher. I'll be on set at the L.A. Bureau. Our website here on the radio side is always the same, GuyBensonShow.com. My name, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand. We recommend that if you miss any of the show as we air between 3 and 6 Eastern. You can also go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Lots of options there. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Both of those platforms. My personal handle on those platforms at Guy P. Benson. Fox News alert as we get going here in our brand new hour. The Dow slightly down today at the close, down 39 points. Shedding a few dozen points and settling at 34,053. Well, joining us now is our friend and colleague, Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network, co-host of the brand new show, The Bottom Line, with Dagan and Duffy, which started late last month. It airs at 6 p.m. Eastern weeknights on FBN. Dagan, it's great to have you back here. Thank you, my friend. I'm jealous that you're in Los Angeles or Los Angeles if you've watched The Grifters. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen really too much crime or homelessness yet, but I also have just looked out one window so far during my stay. So uh, I'll report back. In the meantime, before we get into politics of the day, how's the bottom line going? The new show, I've seen you guys. The studio looks great. You guys look great. How have the first few weeks gone? Oh, it's gone great. I just absolutely adore Sean Duffy, and we just have such a blast. Uh, today, we have Miranda Devine on talking about an admission 
although Hunter Biden's attorneys deny it now after the fact. But it's an admission that, oh, it is Hunter Biden's laptop, which, again, we've known all along, yep. but also a an attempted weaponization of his daddy's Justice Department trying to sick the Justice Department on individuals. It's just astonishing. So Miranda Devine is on. Jocko Willink is going to be on, one of my favorite people on the absolute planet. And I get to pay homage um, and honor my dad's best friend who died right before Christmas, Colonel Gene Smith, retired Army Colonel Gene flew Huey helicopters, a gunship, in Vietnam. And so I'm going to talk to Jocko, and Sean and I will talk to Jocko about honoring Vietnam veterans and whether Vietnam veterans deserve an apology from the United States of America. So there's a lot going on. And Jimmy Fallon's on. He's always a ball of fire, ready to just oh, yeah. set, you know, set the building aflame. <laughs> we have to get you on. <laughs> well, guy. not literally. We hope. Yeah, I think I'm scheduled next week, I'm pretty sure, to be joining the bottom line for the first time. Looking forward to that. Sounds like a great lineup tonight. We just had Miranda here on the radio. Lots to talk about on that front. So, Dagan, let's talk about the economy to get going here. I've seen, and and you're much more plugged into this and the data and the projections than I am, I've seen some bullishness emerging from certain people saying, well, okay, inflation is still way too high and painful, but it's coming down. And maybe we won't really get this hangover recession. Or if we do, it'll be relatively light and painless. Maybe it won't happen at all. Then there's other data points and other experts saying, oh, this is looking hairy. This is looking thorny. That's not looking great. You know, this other shoe looks like it's going to drop. What are you seeing? And what do you think is sort of the, the median expectation these days of what Americans might be bracing for or not? I always think that the expectation or the consensus among investors or economists is what you need to worry about or need to fear. Everyone thinks that we're in for a soft landing, meaning, oh, the like yesterday, the, that the Federal Reserve, the markets – are not worried about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, oh, has slowed its interest rate increases. They are beginning to celebrate that, that the rate raising is almost over. It's time to party. They're essentially trying to get ahead of the Federal Reserve beginning to cut interest rates, that the economic downturn, if there is one, will be mild. And I think that most people have got it dead wrong. Number one, there is still so much money that's pouring into this economy from Biden and company. You had Biden in New York City grinning, talking about Amtrak and the infrastructure, that $1 billion infrastructure spending package. This is all money, the Inflation Reduction Act. I can't even believe I uttered those three words. That's what they call it. But there's a $370 billion, Steve Moore calls it a green energy climate change slush fund that John Podesta is running out of the White House. I'm just, these are a couple of things. All that money has yet to be spent. That's inflationary. 
this money is continuing to pour into the economy while the Federal Reserve is trying to fight inflation. So this means more interest rate hikes. This means more tightening from the Federal Reserve. Jay Powell himself said yesterday, quote, we have more work to do. Inflation remains too high. The Wall Street Journal wrote an op-ed about it today. Why didn't everybody hear that? That means higher rates. Rates have gone from zero to almost 5%, short-term rates, four and three-quarters percent in the last year. That is a speed that we haven't seen in about three decades. People can't handle that. So Americans are caught in the vice grip, the pain of inflation, and now the pain of much higher interest rates. It, it is an untenable situation, and the hardship is being borne and felt by Americans acro- across the country. Now, the rich will and to your you know, point, stay rich. Dagan, I just want to jump in here because you were talking about some of the money that is yet to flow in. There's also a bunch of unspent, quote-unquote, COVID emergency money still hanging around out there. And I don't know if you saw the story this is related to the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the big green energy slush fund situation, but Axios has a story out warning, they're calling it Biden's electric vehicle surprise. Some experts say the value of those tax credits, which we talked about earlier in the week, which he was touting in a way that was politically problematic for a bunch of reasons. He put out a tweet, a photo of himself that just, you know, when you scratch beneath the surface, everything about it was wrong. But the value of those tax credits that he was touting from his agenda might end up being four times higher than Congress's budget experts had anticipated. Imagine that, Dagan, an underestimation by CBO about the value of spending that's going to come down the pike. You know, that could end up, these experts say, being 4x what was expected. I mean, that's just one piece of this larger mosaic that you're talking about. They have people who don't do math, who don't know math, who work throughout government. And these electric vehicle tax credits, again, final, they, the vehicles have to be assembled here in the United States. And they, people who work in the government can't even figure out which vehicles they apply to. I, w- I, I went through all of this information that's been put out by the government so far, and it's exceedingly complicated trying to figure out which vehicles – and it's even leased vehicles, I think, which cars and trucks these tax credits apply to. But we shouldn't be – this is the underbelly of all of these tactics trying to force people to drive these stupid cars. If they made financial sense and they were inexpensive, which they're not, they wouldn't need – handouts from the government to make people buy them. Oh, yeah, and and the photo that I was referencing earlier of Biden, he's sitting in that big electric Hummer with a big smile on his face, tweeting about the $7,500 tax credit, and people are like, yo, that car that you're in is $110,000. Even with that tax credit, you have to be rich to be able to afford that. It was just a mess, and now the overall price tag to taxpayers, these experts are warning, could be a lot higher than CBO had anticipated. seen this movie before. And on that same thread, sort of in the same vein, Dagan McDowell, there was a lot of anticipation 
ahead of yesterday's meeting between the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States, I had said confidently in the days leading up to it, nothing's really going to get done. All right, they're going to talk. They'll come out to the microphones. They'll each put out their, you know, their read on what had just happened. They're not going to be close to a deal. And, you know, it, they both said they had a good meeting. And, you know, they've got to get they've got to work together and they look forward to future talks and so on and so forth. Nothing really got done. Obviously, we're months away from the real deadline. I just wonder how you see this whole thing playing out between now, early February and let's say early June or so. Yesterday, Biden should have got in front of the camera. But he didn't because he's going to get asked about the FBI search of the Rehoboth Beach House, among many other things. If he really cared about the debt and the debt ceiling, he would stop handing out $5 billion every month in welfare to the wealthy in the form of the moratorium on making student loan payments. That's $5 billion that's not going into the Treasury every month. I sound like a record that's skipping because every time it comes up, I mention <laughs> this. But this is money that shouldn't be going out the door. It should be coming into the Treasury, and it's not. So they are not serious about cutting spending, and they're not serious about this debt ceiling because we would have more time in dealing with it if this money was being paid on loans that people took out willingly, first and foremost. And there's still, even the statement that Biden put out, it's still separated. It said the debt ceiling is one thing, and dealing with the debt and deficit is something altogether different. So the statement said one thing. And I think there's room for compromise. The debt limit showdowns in the past, which Brian Riedel has written about, eight of the largest debt deficit reduction laws since 85, Graham-Rudman, Budget Control Act, were all eight were attached to debt limit bills. But God bless House Speaker McCarthy. Let's see what he can do. I wanted to add about the Hummer. The Hummer doesn't qualify for the new EV credits, and it's more expensive than what the average American makes. But my point is, is that none of this money should be going right. None of this money should be going out as handouts to rich people to buy electric vehicles. Because by the way, you know what an electric vehicle doesn't pay for repair of the roads. Because when you charge your electric vehicle, you're not paying a gas tax. And the gas tax goes to the highway trust fund. So all these people are using our roads for free. And it's absolutely, utterly ridiculous. Oh, and by the way, Brian Deese is leaving and Ron Klain. Did you see Ron Klain blubbering and sobbing like Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona? Like, I love him so much. I love him so much. Are you – if you want to know who's responsible for the pain of the American people, it's Brian Deese and Ron Klain over the last two years lied repeatedly about inflation to the American people and passed five trillion dollars in new spending and and new debt if you want to know why you're in pain and why you're suffering with inflation and now higher interest rates it's those two wonder wonder twins of delusion who are walking out the door yeah and you wonder does it get any better with their replacements Uh, we'll see what the Biden administration looks like and what they pursue 
for these next two years, having really tried to squeeze as much as possible out of the previous two years with unified Democratic control, which thankfully they no longer have, despite the underwhelming midterm. Uh, they they could have done even more damage, if not for a tiny handful of votes, which is actually a, a pretty scary thought. Dagan McDowell, we've got to leave it there for now. Fox Business Network co-host of the brand new show, The Bottom Line, Dagan and Duffy, every evening at 6 p.m. Eastern time, right before our friend Kennedy. That again, FBN, I'll be joining the party, I think, next week. Dagan, always great to have you here. Thank you, Guy. Love you. Likewise. Let's take a break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. The last couple of shows, we played some sound bites of everyone's favorite vice president of the United States. We've been on quite a roll recently with some of her rhetorical exploits. She was waxing poetic about the intergenerationality of small businesses, where she kept using terms over and over again and seemed to not necessarily understand the meaning of certain words. Uh, That was a couple days ago we played that clip. Then yesterday, my favorite in a while from her, and she was talking about a space rocket launch. And it really sounded like she was addressing a group of very young children. And it turned out that, no, she was addressing a room of adults at, like, a medal ceremony for astronauts. (laughs) That's my favorite part of that soundbite that we played yesterday. And... In wrapping up that short segment, just paying homage to this sort of magician of words, our vice president, I just commented offhandedly that, just a reminder, you know, she's one heartbeat away from the presidency. And whose heartbeat am I referencing? Well, I'm referencing, of course, the president's heartbeat, and we don't want to leave him out of all this excitement and all this celebration of the use of words in the English language. Here he was earlier today at the White House trying to brag about diverse. I mean, this is what they do. It's all diversity all the time. DEI all the way down. It's like it doesn't matter what your governing outcomes are, your incompetence, the problems. If there's DEI in in their mind, you're winning. So in his effort to brag about the diversity of his administration, well, the president uh, had a little bit of trouble. And let's listen together to that trouble in Cut 30. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in, in my administration are women. More than half the women in my administration are women, is what he said. He struggled. Let's play it again. He struggled with the phrasing and then finally landed on that. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in, in my administration are women. More than half the women in my administration are women. No, I mean, I'd hope so. I mean, who's to say what is a woman anyway? You could ask a Supreme Court justice about that. She would say she's not a biologist. It's all very complicated. More than half the women in his administration are women. A slow clap. It's very impressive, Mr. President. Thank God he didn't talk about binders, though, in this context. Now, that would have been really embarrassing in a scandal. We'll call back to 2012 politics. 
how far we've fallen, how the standards work out. Interesting, isn't it? We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles, California. GuyBensonShow.com. Thank you for listening. Podcast free every day. I was flying out here last night, sitting on the plane. We were slightly delayed. I saw on my Twitter feed a link to a story in the Washington Examiner. Headlined, A Murder in Portland by Nancy Rommelman. I started to read it and my blood began to boil. It talks about a terrible crime. That happened in Oregon last year that was completely preventable. But it was not prevented because of a confluence of forces and events that can only be described as the equity-obsessed left-wing run amok. They call it justice. They call it equity. They call it fairness. It is none of the above. And because of the coddling of criminals, the pro-crime, frankly, policies that are implemented with all of these terms and jargon thrown around, has real-world consequences, including, in this episode, a grisly murder of someone who deserved a lot better. Listen to part of this. I can't get to the whole thing, but the story is outrageous. Quoting now, The beatings escalated after Rachel and Moe split. He would break in after midnight, the girls sleeping through his punching Rachel, choking her telling her she was going to die. One night, he put a gun to her head. She was still shaking when the Portland, Oregon police got there and told her she could request a no-contact order. When I told him I was leaving him, he told me that he would kill me, she wrote on the request, which stipulated Mo stay at least 150 feet away from her and her children. Mo ignored the no-contact order showing up again at dinner time, June 23rd. His and Rachel's four-year-old let him in. He was very high. Whether on cocaine or meth, Rachel did not know. He broke her phone and blocked her when she tried to escape. He spent hours hitting her that night, choking her five times, and saying as he knelt on her windpipe, I'm going to put you to sleep now. Mo went upstairs to the children's room. He left his phone on the floor. Rachel grabbed it and made for the front door. She was not wearing her abaya when the police arrived. It was 6 a.m., and Rachel had a new black eye as she told officers she believed she was going to die. Rachel's former boyfriend was charged with five counts of felony strangulation and strapped with a GPS ankle monitor. At 1.12 a.m., July 27th, Mo was tracked to Rachel's residence where he tore off his GPS. Contacted by the monitoring service, Mo claims someone had broken into his apartment and cut off the GPS while he slept. A bench warrant was issued for his arrest. At 2 a.m. August 11th, Mo again broke into Rachel's. A foot taller and 100 pounds heavier than she is, he body slammed Rachel, sat on her chest, covered her mouth. She could barely breathe but was able to scream, waking the children as Mo swung a length of prayer beads and whipped her face. He then locked her outside. It was after 3 a.m. when police arrived and arrested Mo again. He was charged with contempt of court for violating the no-contact order. On the morning of August 27th, Mo was back. 
Rachel was able to get to her phone and call 911. The operator only heard her yell, I am not doing black magic, before the call disconnected. The operator called back. There was no answer. Mo dragged Rachel to the children's bedroom, where he pressed her face to the window screen and stabbed her repeatedly with a kitchen knife, even after she went still. He moved her from the floor to a bed. He phoned his mother in Texas to tell her what he'd done. He took a shower. At 10.41 a.m., he called 911. She's dead, he told the operator, who told him to try performing CPR. Mo refused. He said what happened was not his fault. He had been protecting the children. He had taken the knife out of Rachel's hand. Officers arrived at the two-story townhouse on 92nd Avenue around 11 a.m. They found three children, ages 7, 4, and 2, downstairs and took them outside. Upstairs, they saw holes in the walls and broken door locks. The carpet in a child's bedroom was soaked in blood, and a sheet-covered body lay on a bed. The victim's face had been cut vertically with a deep wound in her nose and her upper lip sliced in half. A kitchen knife without its handle was on the floor. The coroner later determined that Rachel Angel Abraham, 36 years old, had been beaten and stabbed both before and after being strangled to death. Officers secured the scene. Mohammed Osman Adan, 33, was taken into custody. That is how this story begins. This was an extreme abusive relationship. The police calls dated back to 2021. The no contact order, like a restraining order, was granted and implemented in mid-2022. And yet, as you just heard, over and over again, This murderer ignored the court order, would show up at his ex's place, and badly, badly harm his ex-girlfriend. Coming closer and closer, it seems, to killing her. Threatening every time to kill her. You look at the dates. June 23rd. There's an arrest. There are charges. He's released. July 27th. There's an arrest. Charges. Released. August 11th, an arrest, charges, released. August 27th, murder. It is absolutely outrageous. Now, Nancy Rommelman, the author of this piece, goes on to explain the many factors, the confluence of events that all led to this example. This is not just a random lone example. There are other murders and terrible crimes sprinkled in to this very long story at the Washington Examiner. But this one seems paradigmatic. It is particularly gruesome. It was completely avoidable. And it's inexcusable. And what you're seeing in Portland, or I guess what you saw, because it seems like a lot of people are just sort of over it, there was a brief little bubble up of outrage from the public, and then they lost interest. But what you're seeing, and what we saw apparently publicly in reaction to this murder, was a bunch of circular firing squad finger-pointing from various left-wing entities 
none of whom wanted to take responsibility for what had happened, obviously, and none of whom really want to admit what's going on in the city and what their ideology is doing to wreck that place and wreck people's lives and, in fact, end people's lives in some cases. The story says the laws dictating who could be held in jail as they awaited trial changed on July 1st, 2022, which was, as it turns out, very convenient for this offender. With the passage of Oregon Senate Bill 48 designed to, quote, promote consistent, fair, equitable justice practices across Oregon. SB 48 based pre-trial release on a suspect's threat level and removed the state's previous cash bail system, which criminal justice reformers argued unfairly penalized the poor. Mohammed Adan, who is the killer in this case, was unquestionably poor when he attacked Rachel Abraham. In the early summer of 2022, he was unemployed, had no permanent residence. These may have been among the reasons defense attorneys repeatedly requested Adan not be kept in custody, including on charges of felony strangulation and violating the no-contact order with Abraham, uh, repeatedly. That these incidents occurred before the passage of SB 48 speaks to a certain momentum in Portland. A thrust not to burden the accused, even violent ones, as they await trial. The county DA, Mike Schmidt, had said publicly he was not opposed to private bail funds or bail reform when he was elected in May 2020, so right in the middle of 2020. He stood before the camera and said, we must recognize the discriminatory practices deeply woven into the fabric of our criminal justice system. I know that together we will continue to unravel the threads of systemic racism and make our criminal justice system more equitable. So he was all in on this stuff. All the buzzwords you could imagine. Check, check, check. That's Portland, Oregon. I'm not quite done. I want to bring you a few more details from this piece as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show, reading from this story, Murder in Portland, the Washington Examiner. We're talking about the district attorney, Mr. Woke, elected in 2020. How's it looking? Two years later, this story says, the system was stumbling badly. Portland on target to break 2021's record of 90 homicides. It wasn't as though Portland was the only mid-sized American city experiencing a rise in violent crime. So this DA, in response to this murder, started blaming a group called the Portland Freedom Fund, which is one of these bail fund organizations. Not dissimilar to what our now Vice President Kamala Harris was promoting back in Minneapolis after the George Floyd riots, really during the George Floyd riots. Right, just send these people your money, and they'll use that money to bail criminals out of jail. Rioters, murderers, rapists, whomever, that's their prerogative. That's their discretion. Kamala Harris used her platform, her Twitter feed, to raise funds for one of these types of groups. So the left-wing DA, who is very much part of the problem, told the press the Portland Freedom Fund undermined our efforts and the efforts of the court to save this victim's life by using their resources to bail him out. So they saw this guy, a repeat abuser of this woman, a violent recidivist, and they chose to take some of their funds 
from fellow left-wingers and make sure that he walked free. Judges were setting bail very low. In some of the cases, I would say scandalously low. And then the Portland Freedom Fund came in and said, okay, let's help. Let's get you guys some of this money. And they gave it to Mr. Adon. He got bailed out to then go attack his ex-girlfriend again and again and again until he killed her. The Portland Freedom Fund apparently had looked into Mr. Adon and seen things differently. Or maybe it hadn't bothered to look at all. Maybe it considered strangling a woman and holding a gun to her head. Subjacent to its work as, quote, a volunteer-run abolitionist organization currently dedicated to reducing harms perpetuated against our black, brown, and indigenous neighbors by the criminal justice system through posting bail so they can navigate their case from a position of freedom. Well, they made sure that Mr. Adon was free. And then he made sure that a different member of the black, brown, and indigenous neighbor population no longer could breathe having beaten and strangled and stabbed her to death. And there's just no interest in her rights. It's like, okay, this guy has this color skin, has this kind of name. Here's a Portland organization. Sounds like run by a lot of white people or donated to by a lot of white people being like, all right, the system is racist. We're on his side. The law, at least theoretically, was on his victim's side, but no one seems to care about that. There's a Portland litigation lawyer, Kristen Olson, who's been digging into this case, looking at all the reports. The first assault reported, November 2021, she keeps digging through the repeated violations of the court orders, the multiple arrest warrants, the four judges he appeared before in a five-week period. She says she found the Monday morning quarterbacking, really all the blame shifting, dispiriting. The district attorney's office saying the problem was the Portland Freedom Fund. The fund pointing the finger at other organizations in the system. Olson said she had been grateful that at least some of the public was outraged and hopeful that the mission to get racial equity into the criminal justice system might be delivered some nuance because of this case. Because the victim was also black. But the hope hadn't lasted. Within a week of Abraham's murder... The press had moved on. The only continued interest coming from Oregon Public Broadcasting. They put out a piece called Portland Freedom Fund continues their mission to help BIPOC post bail. That was the headline. Nothing about Abraham's murder. Nothing about her family. In fact, in all of the news articles, both about another murder that's mentioned in this story and the Muhammad Adan case, there was never a focus on the victims. So the media covered this briefly in Portland, then moved on. Nothing to see here. That's boring. That's old news. And then the local publicly funded, taxpayer-funded Oregon Public Broadcasting did like a puff piece on the Portland Freedom Fund as some racial justice group without even mentioning their role I would say their direct role in this murder. So the media is in on this out there, too. There's a local newspaper that had a piece called Portland Isn't a Dumpster Fire. It's watching a sunset together. This is some of the gaslighting that they do. Where they're like, oh, no, here's a lovely photo of our city right now. Look at this nice park. There are people drinking coffees. The national... 
impression is wrong. The caricature is wrong. It's not a dumpster fire. We're watching a sunset together. That was in a major alt-weekly. The article, Rommelman writes, neglected to mention that the picnic time had coincided with a 26-year-old woman being gunned down just a few yards away. The media's in on this to some extent. The people in the powers of structure who yell and scream about all the racism in the powers of structure are actively contributing to lawlessness. They are empowering criminals. They are putting innocent people at risk. And in this case, this horrifying case, a woman paid for it with her life in a murder that should have never happened but was inevitable under the pro-criminal policies of left-wing, equity-obsessed Portland, Oregon. And I guess because the victim is black, it's just sort of not that important to them. The public was upset for about two seconds, and they moved on because, frankly, the public voted for this. This is what you get. This is why we're not stepping away from crime as an issue and left-wing district attorneys as an issue and these hardcore fringe organizations bailing criminals out for like indiscriminate reasons. It is a very dangerous combination in some of our nation's cities. And to turn a blind eye from it, pretend that it's someone else's problem, I think is inhumane. And when things tend to spiral, someone else's problem tends to become someone you know's problem, maybe even your problem. Read the whole piece. A murder in Portland, the Washington Examiner. I just gave you a glimpse of what the story entails. And unfortunately, the story is not a cherry-picked outlier. It is emblematic of a rot in our society. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from Los Angeles. Coming up next, U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Texas, when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show out here in Los Angeles today. Very glad to have you all listening. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free and on demand there. Also at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson on both of those platforms. I'll be on Fox News at night this evening with Trace Gallagher in studio here in L.A. Looking forward to that Fox News channel in the midnight hour Eastern time. Hope to see you there. If you aren't going to stay up that late out east, you can set your DVRs. This hour on the radio sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Our good friends there. Just a fantastic product growing for great reason. You should check it out if you haven't already. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. The Long Drink. 
Com. With me now, U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. He sits on the Finance, Judiciary, and Intelligence Committees in the U.S. Senate. And it's good to have you back here, sir. Good to be with you, Guy. Thanks for having me on. I would like to start with a bill that you're pushing for in the Senate involving the Second Amendment, gun rights, concealed carry reciprocity. Give us just the thumbnail sketch of what this legislation looks like and why you think it should be passed. Well, we're all familiar with the driver's license. But, uh, you can get, use a California driver's license to drive uh, virtually any place in the United States. All this would do was say if you have a, a license to carry or you come from a state that allows you to carry without license, constitutional carry, that you could then, uh, other states would have to recognize uh, that that license subject to whatever restrictions they may have in their state. But they can't, uh, you can't uh, be tripped up just because you cross the state line and, and find yourself in legal jeopardy um, but because of an accident or an oversight. So this is like a driver's license, really. And people say, well, guns are dangerous. Well, in the hands of law-abiding citizens, they certainly are not. They can be used for self-defense, recreation, or the like. But, you know, cars can be dangerous, too, in the wrong hands. And people seem to navigate that responsibly. This would essentially do the same thing for the right to carry. Yeah, I mean, you're right that cars can be dangerous. Cars can be deadly. Unfortunately, we see that every single day. And there isn't a constitutional right to own or drive a car. There is a constitutional right to own or carry a gun. I mean, whether people like it or not, it's right there in the Constitution. If they want to go about changing the Constitution, they can try. I think that's an interesting point. And I think for some people, they might be surprised that this isn't already the case. Like, if you've got the permit in, let's say, the state of Texas— and you just drive to another state, that permit currently does not shield the holder of that permit in another state? Does it depend, like, do certain states have, like, an interstate compact where this has already been dealt with, and you're just trying to broaden it out? Or is it currently pretty, like, a widespread crime almost to do something that intuitively doesn't seem like it should be illegal at all? Yeah, the, you're, you're right. The, there are states like Texas that uh, recognize a uh, license granted by other states, uh, reciprocity, it's generally called, um, and but some states don't, and some states it's clearly to uh, restrict people's uh, right to uh, right to own a, a firearm, and they try to penalize it, make it more difficult uh, as much as they can, even though the Supreme Court has recognized this as an individual constitutional right. So, um, and you're right, it, this, is, uh, this is different from a car, even though I've used the driver's license analogy, because it's something people are familiar with, but uh, this sure. is a constitutional right, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a no-brainer. Senator Cornyn, in your introduction, I mentioned some of the committees that you sit on. One of them is the Senate Intelligence Committee, and I'm sure you've been watching the whole classified materials story unfold over the last number of weeks, and there have been different tentacles to it involving people in both political parties. I just want to get your overall reaction, because now you've got the Justice Department setting up a special counsel investigation. That's just getting underway against President Biden. Apparently there was a DOJ FBI search at his Rehoboth home yesterday that didn't turn up anything. That's what we're told, at least. 
Of course, there have been other troves of classified materials found elsewhere, some of them marked top secret. What's the role of the Senate Intelligence Committee in this while there's this other investigation on a separate track going on with the special counsel? And are you satisfied? Because it sounds like there are members of both parties on that committee who aren't satisfied with the degree of cooperation that you're getting on the Senate side from the administration, from the president's lawyers, et cetera. No, we're not satisfied, and that is a bipartisan reaction. Uh, the, the Senate and the House Intelligence Committees were created after the uh, what was known as the Church Committee uh, investigated abuses, misuse of uh, various intelligence authorities, and provided a level of congressional oversight uh, for the intelligence committee, now numbering uh, 17 different agencies, from the FBI to the Defense Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and so on and so forth. And, um, and we, as a member of Congress, uh, as, a, as a constitutional matter, um, we're a co-equal branch of government uh, with the administration. And really, if you think about it, you have the, the Biden Justice Department investigating uh, the Biden uh, Mr. President Biden, uh, for example, which uh, would strike all of us as pretty pretty strange. Uh, now, Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel, but they've taken the position that uh, they won't disclose any of the content of the classified materials that were secured either at President Trump's, President Biden's, or Vice President um, Pence's uh, uh, office or home. And uh, what we, our message to them is that's simply unacceptable. We're used to operating in confidence. Uh, we review classified material at daily, if not weekly basis, and uh, we're sworn to secrecy, and we maintain that secrecy. But we need to know what our adversaries potentially now know because these documents were stored in insecure locations that may have been divulged uh, to our adversaries. And we need, as policymakers and as a matter of Congressional oversight. Um, we have a right to these documents, and I, I think they realize that their current position is unsustainable, and uh, especially in, in view of the bipartisan uh, outrage at their initial position. Yeah, I know. I saw some of the complaints coming, not just from your colleague Marco Rubio on the Republican side, who's the vice chairman of the committee, but also the chairman of the committee. Democrat from Virginia, Mark Warner, saying, you know, we need and we have a right to see some of this stuff. And there's been just so much secrecy and opacity around this going back to the initial cover up that this was even a problem, because, as we've said many times, this was discovered before the midterm elections. The American people didn't find out about it for months. And there was a report yesterday in The Washington Examiner that the National Archives, when they learned about this, not only did they go to DOJ, they had drafted a memo, some sort of public statement, like a press release about this, and they were ordered, according to the story, not to put that out, not to inform the public that this had happened. And they were asked, okay, well, who ordered you to keep this secret? And they said, well, we can't tell you. Do you have any thoughts on that, Senator? I mean, obviously you can draw some political conclusions, but that seems like a very relevant question. If the National Archives were ordered by some entity not to make public a potential scandal that could have hurt the Democrats right before an election, that seems like another element of the scandal unto itself. Yes. Well, you know, it's no secret that there is a double standard uh, here in Washington when it comes to matters like this. We saw this throughout the Trump 
presidency and the Russiagate investigations and the like, which originally were prompted by opposition research from Hillary Clinton's campaign that the Russians took advantage of and created a firestorm, created a appointment of special counsel, and uh, I could go on and on. Um, but everybody who handles classified information knows you're not supposed to take it outside of a secure facilities. That's that's sort of the first point. But beyond that, we have a vast um, classification process where hundreds of people can classify materials that aren't not because they're so sensitive in terms of sources and methods of intelligence against our adversaries, but because uh, that information could be embarrassing or inconvenient. And then the declassification system usually takes decades uh, before it occurs. And uh, I, think, I think it's past time for us to look at this whole issue. We need to protect our, our nation's genuine secrets, but beyond that, yep. uh, the public does have a right to know, and uh, there needs to be some level of political accountability. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think there's probably an overclassification problem uh, that you were just describing, although at least some of the material that Biden had was marked top secret which is sort of very much at a next level when it comes to sensitive materials. He had that in a closet, it seems, at one of his offices, unsecured. We also learned that at least some of the material found in at least one of these troves in various places came from his time as a U.S. senator. So that would have been 2009 or earlier. You're on the Intelligence Committee, Senator. There were other senators we've had on the air and and tweeting and things saying, how on earth would anyone get classified materials out of the U.S. Senate, given the process that you have to go through the rigmarole to, to view this stuff in a very secure location? That seems like a significant curiosity here as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, I just I can't imagine, um, and uh, unless somebody just uh, decided to try to you know secretly take documents out, but this is another problem with overclassification, guy. Is that uh, the, the volume of records is so great, you know, and it's been paper records, but think of all the digital records that are created and the massive, um, the massive uh, effort that uh, to try to just keep track of it. And so what's happened is now people have had access to classified materials, and there's no record of them, official record of them having access to it, and so there's no accountability. Uh, when it doesn't turn back up where it should uh, once people have uh, looked at it in a secure facility. So a lot of, a lot of different problems being uh, exposed here. Yeah, it seems like on top of whatever culpability Biden might have personally for what he's done here, uh, why this was covered up, why people were told not to talk about it, and all of that, separately, maybe a reboot on best practices and protocols is in order across the board because people obviously aren't respecting the protocols or at least too many people aren't the ability to get away with it kind of depends on how important or powerful you are that's at least how it seems and it also looks like it's kind of unworkable as this thing has progressed you know from an old school filing system into the modern day and you know maybe once the partisan politics are out of it once there's accountability and full transparency on what happened in this circumstance, there could be a bipartisan push to maybe revamp the system because it's important to keep secrets, but it seems like whatever we're doing now isn't really working. Last question, Senator Cornyn, I mentioned another one of your committees in your bio, your intro, the Judiciary Committee. Really embarrassing incident 
for a Biden judicial nominee just days ago in that committee, your colleague, John Kennedy, Louisiana, asked elementary questions of one of these uh, young nominees who would be appointed if confirmed to a lifelong position on the federal courts. And he asked her just and he does this pop quiz occasionally in some Trump appointees, at least one of them, if I recall, got into trouble for uh, whiffing on it. But he asked, you know, what does Article 5 of the Constitution deal with? And she didn't know. He said, okay, what about Article 2, which even I know. I I took a little bit of high school constitutional law for a semester. I even remember the general thrust of Article 2. And she said that wasn't coming to mind. What does that episode say about this process and the quality of some of these nominees that President Biden is putting forward. Because I know the Democrats were very much up on a high horse about this stuff during the Trump administration. This woman, not knowing Article 2 of the Constitution, somehow was rated qualified by the Liberal American Bar Association. There's sort of a lot going on here. Yeah, some of the stuff is pretty basic that uh, any lawyer, and I would say most citizens uh, uh, should and, and do know, um, but some of these nominees clearly lack the experience and uh, and and training uh, for these lifetime tenure jobs. Senator Kennedy does a really good job, as you point out, exposing some of this. And in at least one instance, I can remember the uh, the nominee withdrew uh, in light of the uh, the, the, the the embarrassment uh, that uh, arose out of this exposure. So. You know, why are these people being selected if it's not by virtue of their experience and training and temperament? Well, unfortunately, the Biden administration uses an ideological test first. And uh, that's that's the main criterion by which these people are selected. And unfortunately, now that they're in a majority, um, they can confirm them with unanimous support of all the Democrats. Occasionally, you'll find, even during the previous administration, you would find Republicans that would say, here's a nominee I can't support. But Democrats are, are uh, monolithic and uh, march in lockstep and uh, vote unanimously to confirm these ideological nominees. And unfortunately, that's a consequence of, uh, of us having uh, underperformed during the midterm. Yep. And you can't underperform again. 2024 is coming. Some very vulnerable Democrats, part of that lockstep voting for all of these nominees, including ones that are radical or woefully unqualified. For example, the one we were just talking about. And so 2024 looms large in a lot of ways. We'll be talking about that for months and months to come. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. It's the happy hour. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come right back. Is there more winter coming? It's Groundhog Day. We have an update next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. It's Groundhog Day 2023, which I can't even believe. Christine brought it up in the show planning meeting earlier, and it felt like just a few months ago that we had Janice Dean here talking about her love of Groundhog Day, where she went to wherever it is, Pennsylvania, I think, Puxatani, whatever it is. She loves it. I'm not really into Groundhog Day. I think it's sort of a silly, superstitious tradition, but some people love it, including Janice, and she's lovely. I just can't believe that's been a year already. So I don't really follow this stuff terribly closely. Christine, what was the verdict today? Did Puxatani Phil tell us that there's more winter or less winter? What is it, six 
six weeks or in early spring. I don't even remember how the rules were. Right, guys. So Puxatani Phil has predicted that spring, thank God, is just around the corner, as did my favorite groundhog, Staten Island Chuck. Wait, I thought that Phil saw the shadow and predict more winter, unlike Chuck. Did you just give us some fake news? Wait, isn't six weeks pretty quick? Oh, no, no, hold on. I think six more weeks of winter. Yeah, this is why we can't rely on Cookie. She just brought us some fake news, ladies and gentlemen. Let, let's clean that up. Puxatani Phil predicts six more weeks of winter, unlike Staten Island Chuck. So if you believe in any of this stuff, which I don't, we had to set the record straight, uh, and we will definitely be writing up uh, Christine's incident of false information, perhaps even Russian disinformation. Here on The Guy Benson Show, let's take a break. We'll be right back on The Happy Hour. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today in our first hour on The Guy Benson Show, we welcome back Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, author of Laptop from Hell, some new developments on the Hunter Biden front coming from the Hunter Biden camp. Pretty significant. Here's part of our conversation with Miranda. We've never gotten like the full-blown final confirmation from Team Hunter, Team Biden itself. Remember, their initial position was these are lies, this is Russian disinformation, and now in this letter, this angry letter from Hunter Biden's lawyers, they're saying, you know, hell yes, it's Hunter's, and we want to punish you for talking about it. That is quite an about face. Uh, well, yes, it is. And, of course, we never would have published that initial story in October 2020 uh, if we hadn't been certain that what we were publishing was authentic and you mentioned the letter by the 51 former intelligence operatives including uh, five former CIA directors or acting directors lying having not even um, looked at the laptop or even asked to look at the hard drive uh, lying that it was Russian disinformation. They they used the words uh, earmarks of a Russian information operation, mm-hmm. but they intended it to be heard as Russian disinformation. And that's the way Joe Biden took it, and that's exactly what he was supposed to do because the letter was written specifically to get him off the hook. It's pretty obvious. And uh, Joe Biden, a couple of days after that letter was written, um, a few days after our story came out, uh, he went up on stage against Donald Trump in the final debate of the 2020 presidential campaign, and he uh, described the laptop as a Russian plant. He said it was complete garbage. He mm-hmm. cited the 51, uh, he called them 50 former intelligence folks. It didn't say former. Uh, and he um, and he also said, you know, he said to the audience, you know, my honesty and and my integrity, and um, I would stack it up against, you know, this guy Trump's any day. Well, yeah, we do know uh, the, the the state of his honesty and his integrity. It's non-existent. Um, this is a, a very dishonest man who lies. He's very duplicitous. He tells tall stories. He always has. And uh, now that he's in office, the lies just come so thick and fast. I think it's hard for people to to sort of sort through them and catch up with them. It's interesting, just breaking news um, 
just a, a short time ago, uh, Hunter's lawyers um, clearly stung by the the New York Post front page today, saying it's mine, and saying Hunter Biden finally admitted uh, on the record that that laptop is his, something everyone knew. Uh, so his lawyers have issued a sort of clarification letter, <laughs> and um, they're basically saying that oh no, we never said that. No, no, we oh. never said. You know, it doesn't confirm that that, that this is the so-called laptop. I mean, the letter says that. So ridiculous. Well, he's not being represented by the best, it would seem, because they admitted it. Maybe they didn't realize that this was actually going to confirm what the critics have been saying. So now they're trying to backtrack. That's insulting. Also insulting, as you point out, is this song and dance that Joe Biden does. Sort of this, like, old-timey, take my word as a Biden. He likes to talk about that. I don't think it really means what he thinks it means to a lot of people because of his demonstrable lying on this very subject. And I think it's interesting, Miranda, this kind of jujitsu where they went from it's fake, Russian plant, Russian disinformation, total lie, Rudy Giuliani, you know, all of that before the election to, yes, it's ours and we're coming after you because you're violating our client's privacy. seems like now they're sort of backing off retreating a little bit because they've accidentally admitted something that they didn't want to, but they have, so they have to live with that. But the attempt to turn this against the critics of the Biden family, very interesting. They're calling it a failed, dirty political trick, which, again, I don't really know what the definition of that means in their minds because it's not a dirty trick to report accurate information. I don't care about his substance abuse or womanizing and there's I mean there's a lot of really sorted stuff there clearly he's troubled as you noted though Miranda this is about trading on the family name unseemly business deals lots of money floating around from unsavory characters and hostile countries and the awareness and possible profiting of now the president from some of this stuff that he foreswore any knowledge of whatsoever that's not true as we've learned this is not a political dirty trick. The dirty trick was covering it up and blaming it on the Russians. Absolutely. The cover-up is probably, as with Watergate, uh, bigger than the original corruption story. Um, Joe Biden lied. He knew that um, that was Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, of course he did. And uh, Hunter had dropped it off on in April of 2019, just a couple of weeks before his father announced his candidacy for president. My full interview with Miranda Devine, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day, the whole show on demand, start to finish, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch from L.A. The language police are out. We'll be discussing that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch from the West Coast. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. And we're going to mix things up just a little bit here in the final segment of the show and take a popular segment and import it into the home stretch. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! Bad boys, bad boys. What you going to do? What you going to do when they come? Oh, yeah. The language police out in full force. We have to talk about this. It has gone hyper viral. I've seen people making parodies of it, 
mocking it, dumping on it. It is preposterous. Tens of millions of views on social media. It is this list. It's like a roster of terms that apparently you're not supposed to say. And then they offer alternative phrases instead. It's called evolving from violent language by someone called Anna Taylor, but it was made popular or famous unironically by some tech guy, I think. Jeremiah Aoyang is his name, where he tweeted this as like a confessional. I didn't even consider my language. I've used the phrases on the left too often, like, oh, I'm so sorry, everyone. Just prostrating himself before a potential future angry mob, virtual mob, flagellating himself for the use of completely normal anodyne phrases. Like, if you want to object to some of them, it would be under the framing of cliché, like find something more creative to say, and I'm guilty of all of that. But these are being described as violent language expressions that we need to evolve away from. So this guy screen grabs it, shares it like this is a really important, serious thing. And again, millions of views later, it has gone all over the place. So would you like to hear some of the violent language? Instead of, we're going to pull the trigger, say this, we're going to launch. Instead of saying, I'll take a stab at it, say, I'll take a pass at it. Did we jump the gun? No, that should be, did we start too soon? By the way, I love the jump the gun one. Because that's a racing term, like a starter pistol. These people are idiots. It seems like the main theory behind the violent language is anything that might conjure an image of a gun or a weapon or something that is anything other than wonderfully pleasant will just traumatize certain people because it's so very violent. Did we jump the gun? Has nothing to do with shooting anyone. It's like shooting a blank into the air to start a race. Violent. Instead of, I'll bite the bullet, say this, I won't avoid it any longer. That'll kill two birds with one stone. (laughs) The alternative is, that'll feed two birds with one scone. I can't believe people, some people actually shared this seriously. Oh, killing birds. I wonder if these people ever eat chicken or turkey, for example. All right, they'll feast on the cooked flesh of birds, but, oh, we can't say kill two birds with one stone. Let's talk about feeding birds with a scone. Deadline, apparently, is violent. We should use due date, because deadline uses the word dead. It's violent. <laughs> we have to pick our battles. Can't say that. Apparently, we also can't pick our battles, because this is some of the dumbest battle picking I've ever seen in my life. Instead, they should say, we have to choose our opportunities. Can you shoot me an email? Well, you can see the problem there. Shoot. Because when I say shoot an email, I'm obviously envisioning someone with a gun shooting someone else, right? That's, that's what that brings to mind. 
if you're a psycho. Don't say shoot, say send. Overkill, can't say that. Call it excessive. I bombed the presentation. I didn't do my best is preferable. I'm sorry, bombing as a word meaning like absolute failure is hilarious. Bombing as a comedian is sort of one of the most famous usages of that term. Although, if this was actually meant as satire and humor, this was not a bomb. This was very successful, except the scary part is it's real, and these people, some of them, earnestly think that these terms are violent and should be excised from our collective vocabulary. Roll with the punches is violent. Because of the word punches. I'm going to take a shot in the dark. Okay. Guns. This one might be my very favorite. That's not a bad idea. Instead, we should say that's a good idea. Well, first of all, there's a difference between a good idea and an idea that's not bad. Right? These are degrees of goodness. It's a different shade of a positive reaction. To say that's not a bad idea has a different connotation than saying that's a good idea. They don't mean exactly the same thing in our parlance, right? in our vernacular. Also, what on earth is violent about saying that's not a bad idea? Nothing. Someone spent time obsessing over this and putting this together, then publishing it to the world. Then someone else saw it and said, wow, this is excellent. I agree. Let's share this and amplify it. Let's not beat a dead horse, which we might be doing in this segment already. It might be Christine's favorite catchphrase of all time, but she actually does mean it literally in a violent way. R.I.P. Carousel. Blown away. Can't use that. Kicking around an idea. Kicking. Maybe we should curb stomp an idea. Does that for an alternative. He's a straight shooter. Oh, nope. This is real. Now, the good news is most of the attention coming to this list comes from people absolutely ripping it to shreds. I saw one version of it that's already been mocked up where the instead of say this dichotomy, actually in the preferred column, they made everything much more aggressively violent. I got a kick out of that. This is just a bunch of innocuous language. It's not violent at all. You have to be, I would say, almost mentally ill, but certainly extremely bored with nothing in your life to fixate on this sort of thing. And I think it's right to ridicule it, not because it's just some random little thing. This is the type of mentality that actually is taking place And taking root, in particular, on college campuses, there was a story that I think we told you about a few weeks ago. Stanford University had this language police initiative to get rid of a lot of harmful language, much of which was totally normal and not problematic at all. 
They just have these busybodies on the left who take it upon themselves to come around telling people what they can think, what they can say, how they can say it. The terms constantly change. The rules are in flux endlessly, and that's the point. It's power. They want to impose their stupid cultural power on everyone else. It makes them feel better about themselves. It brings meaning, I guess, into their empty lives. And I think it's incumbent on the rest of us who want nothing to do with this to not only actively reject it, but also to actively mock it. And it's a target-rich environment, which, by the way, is probably violent language. Target, gun, arrow, archery, target-rich. Am I calling for people to be crossbowed to death? That is what sweet Anna Taylor and Jeremiah Aoyang might be concerned about. Christine, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited did you get when I said beat a dead horse? Well, Guy, uh, being the animal activist that I am, I'm actually in agreement with dear Anna. I think that we should get rid of let's not beat a dead horse. You know, the the poor horse is dead already. Why should we beat it some more? I mean, why should we beat it at all? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm. And right, because you're, so, you're not so into – here. I think your objection here is mm. not to the term or the concept of beating a dead horse. It's trivializing something in an aphorism or a cliché that you think is actually like a call to action, should be literally an instruction based on your, you know, your history. You can call it animal activism. You can call it, you know, equine murder. There's different terms for it. I call it rehoming. There was no murder. It was we were just putting the horse somewhere else. I also, um, I kind of agree with, changing that's not a bad idea to that's a good idea because very rarely do I ever hear you say to me that's a good idea I mean when I throw things out there sometimes I do hear that's not a bad idea but if I could hear less of that and more on the other side that would make me happier so I don't know I might stand with Anna for this so you just want more reinforcement and validation is what you're saying and so you want to start imposing rules on other people like me that's a bad idea i'll just say that straight up that's a bad idea i also love this idea that you were just rehoming carousel yes you rehomed her from her wonderful little stable on your rolling meadows farm in new jersey where you grew up to the great golden corral in the sky aka a dump in staten island that's one way of rehoming how's that for violent language It's the Guy Benson Show back here tomorrow from elsewhere in California. We'll tell you about that tomorrow. In the meantime, have a great night. Thanks for being here. We'll talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.